If y'all would go ahead and stand as we uh, read from our text this morning out of John 6, starting in verse 60. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, asked them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some among you who don't believe. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Therefore Jesus said to the twelve, You don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, who will we go to? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. I have to ask this question before we start. I've not been in Texas long enough yet. Um, The department store, Kohl's, is that a thing here? We have that? K-O-H-L, okay. I wanted to make sure that that wasn't foreign. Uh, This is good. Now I can can preach. Um, That would have been bad. Um, Well, I hate Kohl's. Um, I hate it. I hate it a lot. I have terrible childhood memories of Kohl's. Traumatic, even. Um, When I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, our Kohl's was right next to our our biggest uh, Walmart. And... I grew up in a family of seven, and one would think a family of seven would spend a lot of time shopping at Walmart, but it seemed to me like we spent an inordinate, even, inordinate, sorry, an inordinate, even a, um, a disproportionate amount of time at Kohl's. Um, again, maybe it was just my foggy memory or being about eight years old, um, but it seemed like we spent a lot of time there, and like I said, I dreaded every trip that I ever took to Kohl's. And the reason I hate Kohl's is because I can't remember a time before the age of probably 12 where we went to Kohl's as a family and I didn't get lost. Um, At least our Kohl's, maybe all of them are like this, but ours was a big place. It was vast. The ceilings were high. It was just a big, big store. And, And I managed to get lost, I'm fairly certain, every time between the ages of 6 and 12. Uh, one of my earliest memories in childhood is actually a time when I decided I'd just, you know, hide in the coat rack because mom was trying on clothes and what else are you going to do when you're seven? And uh, maybe she stopped trying on coats and moved over to pants or something and she forgot I was there. So uh, I, got, I got scared. I went through all the stages of grief and at one point I think I actually, I actually got to acceptance where I decided I'm just going to live the rest of my life as a castaway at Kohl's. <laughs> I started thinking, like, where am I going to get food? Where am I going to sleep? I'll find the comfiest uh, pile of go-backs in returns. I'll sleep on that. Um, and this is the truth. I actually, following this particular experience, I started to have nightmares about getting lost specifically at Kohl's. It's particular to this store. And I'm sure many of you as well have stories about getting lost as a kid. Um, I have, 
You'd be shocked. I have lots more, and I can keep you here for a really long time telling you about all the places I got lost. Uh, Again, like I said, there were seven in my family. I was the second of five and had four sisters, so one older sister, three younger sisters. Um, It wasn't easy to keep all of us together in the same place. Uh, I don't envy my parents at all uh, in that instance, in that case. But the scariest thing to me um, about being lost was not the uncertainty of, you know, where are my parents? Like, that was traumatic, don't get me wrong. But the worst part, I think, of being lost is not knowing whether or not anyone is looking for you. It's not knowing if anybody has noticed you're gone. Or the worst thing that could really happen is they have noticed you're gone and they don't care. Now, I'm pretty sure that didn't happen, but at the same time, when you're seven, you don't know. Um, you're, you, you can't know. There's no way of knowing. But being lost is one thing, but being intentionally left alone is something totally different and a lot more frightening. It's the feeling of abandonment. And it's this idea of abandonment that actually prompted me to change the title that you'd see in your bulletin. It's not that, it's this that's behind me um, that we're going to look at because I think the key character in this text in John 6 is exactly that, abandonment. Uh, So if you would, go ahead and turn to John 6. We're going to be flipping all the way through, uh, so try to keep up. The beginning of John 6 describes the only one of Jesus' miracles that's actually recorded in all four Gospels. Uh, And that miracle is the feeding of the 5,000. And y'all have heard this story a bunch of times when you were kids. The little boy comes with his fish and loaves, and it's distributed all across, and they pick up all these baskets full in the end. But only the Gospel of John records what happens in the aftermath of the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, You see, after he feeds the 5,000 people, they they respond in an interesting way. If you look at verse 14, uh, when the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this is really the prophet who was to come into the world. Therefore, Jesus, when he knew that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, they want to keep Jesus around so much that they will go to the extent that they try to kidnap him and force him to be their political voice amidst the social turmoil of their day. Does this sound familiar? Of course we would never do something like that in 2016. I'm sure we would never. We would never. Jesus, in response, quietly slips away from the crowds for some alone time. Then we read that the twelve get in a boat uh, to cross the Sea of Galilee, and it starts to storm. So in verse 19, we read that that they rode about three or four miles and they see Jesus walking on the sea. He was near the boat, but they were afraid. And he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. So depending on your interpretation of these last couple of verses, you got some options. One, the writer has had a really long day. Uh, two would be that, I guess, you know, maybe it happened, I guess. Um, I wouldn't put it past it. I guess 
Jesus could have very easily teleported that boat across the Sea of Galilee, and I would have loved to have been there for it. Um, but because we have those options, or perhaps he's using some hyperbole to, to explain uh, that, you know, basically we got there really soon once Jesus came. There's a lot of possibilities there, but regardless, the God-man has had quite the busy 24 hours of defying physics, maybe as many as three times. So we're coming back. We're coming back to the feeding of the 5,000. What would you think, engage your brains with me, what would you think if you gave 5,000 people a free meal, what are they going to do next? What are they going to do the next day when they come looking for you? What are they going to want? They're going to want another free meal. You read the book, you give a mouse a cookie, going to want some milk to go with it. If you give 5,000 people a free meal, they're going to want another free meal. It's It's a law. It's a law. It's true. When you give a free meal to 5,000 people with the amount of food that we Americans would consider the appetizer, they're gonna want another meal. We're not going into too much detail because this has a lot of detail here in John 6 and it's really, really meaty and definitely please read it. We're not going to read all the way through it right now, but to summarize, uh, they want Jesus to continue caring for their immediate physical needs. Uh, they want Jesus to continue feeding them, and they, they try to manipulate him in all these weird ways, and he's not having any of it. Uh, Jesus refuses, and he insists that that sign, that the feeding of the 5,000, that the reason that happened was to foreshadow, was, for, was to foretell uh, the truth, the deep truth that he is the bread of life. In John six thirty five, one of those I am statements, he says, I am the bread of life. Um, And whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood will have no part in me. And that's where they, that's where they catch on to and say, this is a hard teaching. This is a difficult teaching. They even say this is an offensive teaching. It is a, this is interesting. uh, The word that's really used there is uh, a cognate. It's the exact word where we get our word scandal. Um, It is scandalizing for you to talk like this, Jesus, they say. And according to their law, they're not that wrong. Uh, There's parts of Leviticus that talk about, and I wouldn't probably need to tell you this, but I'm going to so that I can say that I did. Um, In Leviticus 26, when God is saying, basically obey me and good things will happen, disobey me, bad things will happen. That's a summary of the Pentateuch, pretty much. Obey me, good things. Disobey me, bad things. When he goes into one of his, if you disobey me sections, one of the things that he mentions as a curse is, you will eat the flesh of your sons and you'll eat the flesh of your daughters. This is, it is not odd for them to consider this teaching scandalous. Uh, God seems to have some pretty clear feelings about cannibalism, which shouldn't shock us, of course, um, and every time this, this scandal word, this scandal word is used, it's used in a way that means something obviously bad. Um, when Jesus says, you know, if you cut off your hand, or if you, <laughs> I got ahead of it, uh, if your right hand, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Causes you to sin literally scandalizes you. Uh, Matthew 18, woe to the world because of temptations, literally the word there used is scandals. When Paul talks about meat sacrifice to idols and he says, don't cause your brother to stumble, he says, do not scandalize your brother. This is the language 
that these people are using to speak about Jesus' teaching of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which admittedly sounds weird. We've been down that road, but these are the words and the languages. This is the, the, the thought that people have about this teaching. It is scandalous. It is disturbing. And they say in verse 60 that this is a scandalous teaching. Who can hear it? Who can listen to it? Who can abide it? And you know who can't abide it? They can't. They leave, every one of them. Just like that, abrupt as it may seem at this moment, they are done. So quick show of hands, how many of y'all use Facebook? I'm pretty sure it's more of you because I'm friends with some of you whose hands aren't up. Uh, but that's but Facebook. We pretty much everybody uses it. It's not like one of those social medias. Oh, it's for the kids. Facebook's not just for the kids. Facebook's everybody. Everybody's using it pretty much. Um, it, it's, it spans generations and, and, and different backgrounds. Did you know that there is a friend limit on Facebook? You can actually only have so many friends. Anybody want to guess the number of friends that you can have? Y'all are good. First service didn't get it. They said like 100, and I was like, I wish. That should be the case. You should be limited to less. 5,000, yes. Um, fittingly enough, you can only have 5,000. Once you hit 5,000, you're no longer just a person, according to Facebook. You are a public figure. You are a, like a C, D list, D list or C list celebrity, effectively. People can like your page, but they are not friends with you necessarily. And again, that's according to Zuckerberg and the Facebook people. Um, okay, quick show of hands for Twitter. Who uses Twitter? A little, few, a little fewer, more younger crowd, probably. Um, something similar happens on Twitter about when you reach that threshold, maybe some more followers. Uh, the Twitter people will seek you out and attempt to verify you. Uh, you can see, can we see it this time? We can see a little better than first service. That's good. Uh, there's a little Twitter symbol right there, right up to my, I'm struggling with right left today. On this side is the check mark you'll see next to something that is verified as that person's account. It is that real person. A lot of people make fake ones, but if it has the check mark, it's real. And once you hit a certain amount of followers, they will seek you out and try to verify you so that everybody knows that this is the real you because you're that important. Um, is anybody in here verified? I doubt it. You're, come on, man. Come on. I will. That'd be sweet, though. Is that your goal? Be, have a goal. Be fer- get verified. That's a, that's a goal you could have, I guess. But anyways, some of you might not care too much about this whole social media thing. Um, but imagine with me for a second, um, whether it's your Facebook, your Twitter, your Instagram, whatever your, whatever your medium of choice is, imagine that one day you got... 5,000 followers. Maybe just out of the blue, maybe because your selfies are lit, whatever it is. (laughs) Whatever that may be, for some reason, all of a sudden, people are attracted to what it is that you're putting out in the, in the, in the, the web sphere. And that's probably going to have some effect on your ego. It's going to have some effect on, hey, whatever it is I'm doing, I'm doing it right because people want to see it. Um, imagine the same thing with Facebook. Or imagine, forget the social media thing, 
Imagine just that you start to garner this attention for whatever reason, uh, for some good thing that you've done. Perhaps you started a nonprofit for uh, for cancer patients or for uh, the homeless or something. Uh, imagine that you that you've got this ball rolling, that you've you've garnered some momentum on some project to to help people out of just the uh, out of just the goodness of your heart. And you start to attract this audience that wants to become a part of this great thing going on. And then say the next day that someone starts a rumor. Someone says that you're withholding donations for yourself. Or that your tax returns wouldn't check out if they were put into the public eye. And then all of a sudden, for one thing, because of how fast news travels now, and also by how addicted it seems we are to the negative stories, all of that, that exposure and that audience that you once had is now gone. Not only is it gone, but your reputation has totally turned upside down. Your reputation was one of a benefactor, one of somebody who loved people and wanted to do good things for people, and now you're looked at as a liar, as a cheat, as a fraud. Your name is disgraced, and there's nothing that you can do about it. You've been totally abandoned. And as we said before, that feeling of being just lost, you know, if you're lost, it leaves some element of, of hope for reconciliation, for restitution. But abandoned means, abandonment means not only does no one care, but whoever left you is turning and walking the other way, that you are being intentionally left alone and abandoned. Your reputation is tarnished. You've been abandoned by so many you thought were on your side and not a one of them will care to think of you again. In John 6, Jesus' reputation went from supreme benefactor, this defier of physical law, the dominator of the natural universe, to liar and cheat, and fraud, and scandal in a matter of 24 hours. And yes, Jesus did still have his close friends, and yes, Peter makes the confession that, that we know that you are the Holy One of God. But even then, following that confession, Jesus asked, have I not chosen all of you, and yet one of you is a devil? Referring to Judas. It's easy to assume, to assume that that verse where Peter, Peter makes that confession is like the climax of this, this story. But I'm arguing this story is not about Peter's confession. This is about Jesus dealing with serious whiplash and depression over being abandoned by his followers. I think this gives us one of the greatest glimpses into who Jesus is as a human not just as a, as a God-man, as a, you know, our human minds can really only comprehend one at a time of him being God or being man. But this gives us a glimpse into the humanity of Jesus. This is the moment of his life where he realizes his service on earth and his effect on earth as far as he will see it is going to be small. It won't be noticed by many. He won't get credit for the things he does on earth. Instead, his lot is the whiplash of rejection to the 5,000th power. 
And although in this moment the twelve stand by him, he knows the time will come where one becomes his murderer and eleven will leave him and abandon him in fear and that he will stand an illegal and an unfair trial and that he will be, he will be sentenced to an excruciating death. And what could make that excruciating death any worse than having to endure it alone as he does? He cries out in his agony, not of body even so much as an agony of his soul. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And though we don't hang on the cross that Jesus hung on or that he bore, we echo his cry of loneliness and abandonment when we ask God why we have lost the things that we did not deserve to lose. My reputation, my reputation. My job, my job. My family, my family. My husband, my husband. My wife, my wife. My child, my child. Our God, our God, why have you forsaken us? We talked about the difference between being lost and abandoned. I'm really happy that the Bible talks about lost people and not abandoned people. And Psalm 16, a psalm ascribed to David, a psalm that uh, that most believe to be a messianic psalm. One talks about Christ specifically. The writer says, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Jesus himself, that, that God-man, was at one point deserted by every single human being he ever came into contact with. And for a time, even God the Father, as he hung on the cross, but he was not abandoned in death. And neither are we, and neither are you. Because in communing with the Father, in, in participating in that scandalous truth, In this meal of the body and the blood of Jesus, we become in union. We join into communion with the body of Christ, with who Jesus is. Paul teaches us that that, that when we take this bread, when we drink the wine, when we participate in the body and the blood of Jesus, that we proclaim his death until he comes. And in his death, our Savior was not abandoned. He was not deserted. And all who believe in Jesus, who are buried in baptism with him and are raised to life in his victory and participate in communion with him in eating his flesh and drinking his blood, that scandalous truth that drove 5,000 away from him at one time draws all people to him for all time. And those who eat the bread of life and drink the wine of his blood 
are never left alone. No matter who you lose, no matter who has left you, has abandoned you, the Father has made a promise that he will not abandon his faithful one to the grave, and he will not abandon you. So I'm not sure what else could really be said to plead with you, even with one of you, to come into that communion with Jesus, to accept his invitation to never be abandoned, to be able to face anything, even death, with the assurance that God does not abandon his faithful ones to the grave. His children will not be taken by the enemy. They will not be left alone to face any struggle because he has stormed the gates of hell and he has reclaimed his own by the body and the blood of his son. But maybe you have and maybe you still find yourself crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the valleys where you may feel abandoned, that's where communion really becomes community. And this family and this body of believers and that, that, that makes up the body of Christ will not leave you. They are here to put your arms around you and to love you with the love of the Lord. Give us that opportunity to love you, to surround you with a community that dwells in communion with Christ. I'm asking you to come to find one of the leaders of this church that will be around these, this building, around these walls, and come and pray with them as we stand and sing.